0: Welcome to this episode of Fossils and Fiction, a podcast that explores the stories of prehistoric life, most often through the stories we humans tell about it. It's produced by me, Travis Holland, with support from Charles Sturt University. Enjoy. He had
1: a temporary workshop which was full of half-built models. There is a photograph available of the studio. Some were nearly finished, some were half-finished. What happened on May the 3rd in 1871 was a gang of organised thugs with sledgehammers were sent in, went in, and completely smashed up everything into very small pieces, carted the pieces away, and buried them somewhere in Central Park.
0: On this episode of Fossils and Fiction, the mystery of who destroyed Central Park's dinosaurs, my guest is Vicky Cools, a PhD candidate and researcher at the University of Bristol in the UK. Vicky is looking into the entanglements between visual culture and dinosaurs, and that took her into the story of the 1871 attack on a nascent Paleozoic museum destined for New York's Central Park. Vicky and Michael Benton recently published a paper on that topic and we chat about that and more. Vicki, I have this wonderful paper in my hands called The Curious Case of Central Park's Dinosaurs, which you've just published uh, alongside Michael Benton. Could you tell me about these dinosaurs?
1: Right. Well, the dinosaurs in the paper never actually came into existence If I can just do a little bit of a backstory there. The main character in the story, Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, was British. He was an artist and sculptor. And he became well known because in the early 1850s, he was responsible for designing and creating the models, the life-size models that were placed in the Crystal Palace in London, the Crystal Palace Park in London. Um, And this was as a result of the great exhibition, and I think that's 1853. But they moved the whole thing to a park because it was so successful and they built additional attractions, one of which they called the Geological Court, which the idea was to show the progression of geology. Hawkins was brought in to model and build the life-size models of the creatures that were known at the time they're referred to as the crystal palace dinosaurs although some of them are not actually dinosaurs as we would call them that so but that's how they're referred to now in 1860s he went to america and he was well known by then so he was asked by the central park committee who were central park was developing then i mean new york was expanding after the civil war they wanted a park in the center of the city they wanted more than just green space so he was commissioned he was known for the crystal Palace dinosaurs he was commissioned to design and build something similar for central park using american prehistoric creatures not the european ones and the difference (laughs) yeah the the difference would be that these would be indoors they would uh, presume to avoid the extremes of the New York weather, Um, but he was going to design and build these um, life-size models again, and they would be put inside a purpose-built museum. So that's what he was doing. He, um, In the course of this, he had to research the different dinosaurs. So he got invited to go around to the different existing museums that had fossils. One of them was in Philadelphia, the Academy of Natural Sciences. And they had just been working on the first, nearest complete dinosaur fossil they'd found, which was the Hadrosaurus falchii. Mm -hmm. And it was Hawkins' idea, while he was looking at this fossil, that he could actually, with the help of some plaster cast models, he could actually build and mount uh, a full-size skeleton. Uh, which had never ever been done before anywhere, surprisingly, not in Europe, not in the UK, um, and which he did. And this was an abs- went down an absolute storm. They put it on display in the museum. It was posed in a bipedal position. It was big, and the public loved it. So this gave more impetus for the Central Park project. He went back to New York and was working on the Central Park project. So the dinosaurs that he was designing, actually, he only had two. One was the Hadrosaurus, as I mentioned. The other was Lelaps, and I've forgotten the second name. I can look that up, The which was a smaller predatory dinosaur. But that's all they had in terms of dinosaurs in America at the time. But he also was going to put in mammoths and um, glyptodonts and other prehistoric creatures. And that was all going well. And that's the the basis. So he was part of the way through this project. He was building the models, the armatures and so on when it all went wrong. So that was the sort of background to what happened. If I explain what I'm doing to have got involved in this, I'm doing a PhD at Bristol part-time. And what I'm looking at is dinosaurs in visual culture because Mm. everybody loves dinosaurs, children, adults the media and so on and nobody has really looked at them in the context of visual culture itself so I am registered in Bristol's History of Art department in the Faculty of the Arts but I'm co-supervised by Professor Mike Benton who was my co-author on the paper who is the head of the they call it the Paleobiology Research Group, so it's Bristol's Department of Paleontology. And it's quite a big thriving department. It 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 does a lot of um new um paleobiology and so on. And so I'm across two departments really. And one of the things I was interested in is in how, how these images of dinosaurs, which almost began to appear as soon as dinosaurs were discovered. How they were affected by and affected things like the relationship with the science itself. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that paleontology, as you know, is one of the few sciences that really depends on artists to actually visualise what it is they're working on. So there's been this relationship between art and science f- forever. Um, so that's what I'm doing. I'm my actual research focuses on the end middle to end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century in America. And that's because that's where what we often call dinomania took off. What happened was the actual public enthusiasm and craze for dinosaurs kicked off in America. And it was as partly as a result of the hadrosaurus I've mentioned earlier. And that's where it really took off this enthusiasm for, for dinosaurs. So that's why I'm concentrating on that period and that area and in the course of which I'm doing four case studies. the first case study is Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins in America and initially I was interested in the build of a Hadrosaurus and the effect it had on on everything from visitor numbers to the, the you know the media uh, interest. I knew about the Central Park case, and it was in the in the process of researching all this for my first case study, for my first chapter in the dissertation, that I began to question the case and eventually came up with the research that formed the basis of the paper.
0: Yeah, well, we, we might jump back to that one now. So, So what actually happened? He was in the process of working on these dinosaurs.
1: And suddenly they were destroyed somewhat mysteriously. Well, what had happened is if we can sort of step outside that slightly, New York was going through a bit of political turmoil mm-hmm. and the uh Democrats were in in power and, and develop you know, um expanding their power. The there was a politician named William Tweed, his nickname was Boss, that's how he referred to himself, who had a, a small cohort around him. And to all intents and purposes, he was essentially corrupt. He was trying to get power. He was getting um, contracts. I mean, you can imagine New York in that period in the late 1860s, early 1870s, there was a lot of building going on, expansion going mm-hmm. on, and he was um, giving contracts to his mates. He was moving money around in ways that perhaps were raised as eyebrows. He was doing things like um, giving jobs. There was a huge influx of Irish immigrants to New York, who some of them, of course, were fleeing from the potato famine or had done. But he was, he was becoming known as somebody who was trying to find absolute power. And also, um, there were people who were beginning to be suspicious that he was not doing it in the most uh, way with the most integrity. Now he then decided to put his own people in charge of the board of commissioners that looked after central park they expanded it to include all the public parts so there was a change of if you like management at the top of of the people in central park who had commissioned a museum and almost the first thing they did was cancel the project that in itself isn't terribly controversial because looking at the figures, um, and I've been able to look at some of the finances, this was being funded out of city funds and it was expensive. <laughs> it was going to be a purpose building. It was going to have um, you know, a, a fairly well-established area within the park. The models themselves and so on were costing money, Hawkins was being paid and they decided that the cost of completion was too much, and so they cancelled the project. And that in itself happens, and it happens a lot of times. It's that's just politics. Amount. That's politics, that's finance, that's economics. What was shocking and what was surprising? Hawkins went back to the board and tried to persuade them to not cancel, um, that it had a value in education and science and so on, but they were having none of it. But... It would have lied there, except for the fact, so this cancellation happened at the end of 1870. What happened in May 1871 was the, so the workshop, he had a temporary workshop, which was full of half-built models. There is a photograph available of the studio. Some were nearly finished, some were half-finished. What happened in on May the 3rd in 1871 was a gang of organised thugs with sledgehammers were sent in, went in and completely smashed up everything into very small pieces, carted the pieces away and buried them somewhere in Central Park. And that was the incident that com- caused the sort of shock waves everywhere. Mm. So that was what had actually happened and, and, the- and it was initially attributed to to boss Tweed right. Oh. So the question became, as historians of paleontology said, well, why? Who, who sent these in? Because this wasn't just a sort of mindless, you know, gang of oiks were looking for something to do. This was organised and sent in and, and so on. Everybody then attributed this to Boss Tweed and they attributed it to him for different reasons. One of the reasons they said it was him was... One of the things that got me suspicious that maybe it wasn't. So I can, I can, if you like, I can go into to why I I didn't believe this. If you see what I mean, and why I yeah, no, it.
0: I'm absolutely interested. And
1: what what really interests
0: me about the whole story really is is this is one of the very earliest moments I think at which politics and culture are really tied up with dinosaurs, and we see that again and again uh, later on as as they kind of become more and more a part of the cultural imagination. I think this is a really fascinating story that goes right back to those roots.
1: Well, this is what interests me anyway, in my whole um, project. And Mm. I mean, even you could argue stepping outside slightly that the whole of history of art is if if any item or object or artifact of art you have, you, 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 you can't examine it or identify it in isolation from the surrounding culture, politics, and so on. You know, it, it it's it's it takes a huge chunk of the actual work that goes in in a history of art project is to take that and look at what else what had affected the the artist. But in this case, you're absolutely right. This relationship between politics, actually, the relationship is between politics, between culture, between science, and basically economics, um, and it's a really tangled relationship but you're absolutely right that this is an indication of of what happened my suspicions reading the accounts that were in the if you like either papers or as you know you get either textbooks not many textbooks of the history of paleontology but there's usually something in paleontology textbooks and the consensus story seemed to be that tweed had done this he had ordered it And the reason a lot of people quoted that he'd ordered it were that in March 1871, so the project had been cancelled and Hawkins still wasn't very happy and he'd lost a lot of income and and so on, there was a meeting of the New York Lyceum of Natural History, which is one of these learned societies that um, they get together and and read science papers and so on. But he he was a, a member of that. He went to the meeting and this subject came up about the cancellation and the scientists at the meeting were, it was minuted as not being, you know, very impressed and and thought it shouldn't have been cancelled. And somebody made a slightly sarcastic comment about, well, you know, if it isn't going to make Tweed money, then it's not going to, you know, happen. But that was almost a throwaway line. And officially within the meeting, somebody else said, well, look, that's not a helpful comment. Let's look at what happened. And that was it. And that was reported in the New York Times. And the argument went that Tweed was so enraged by being criticised in the New York Times that he ordered this as an act of revenge. And that's the main real reason that that people gave. The other reason was that, oh, it was blasphemous because it There was the whole issue around um, Darwin and evolution. That was another reason that was given. And in the paperwork, if you like, the reports, they used the term pre-Adamite. And as Mike Benton has pointed out several times, um, it didn't mean that it was blasphemous. It was the same way that we would today use the term prehistoric. It, Mm -hmm. It was just one of the ways of referring to it then. So I was and reading so, these yeah. Sorry, I was going to say,
0: and potentially that interpretation of pre-Adamite as being sort of blasphemous as a term rather than a descriptive term, you know, the, the people who've made that interpretation, perhaps they're bringing their own politics to it as well, yes. which is interesting.
1: And the um, the consensus was, oh, well, if they used the term pre then they meant it was, you know, blasphemous and so on and and there was a tendency, which I'll come back to in a minute, to to uh, assume that in the end of the 19th century, there was this very simple religion versus science dispute. Um, and so everybody put together the thinking and said that Tweed was enraged by the newspaper report of this meeting, which happened in March, and was possibly some pe- some writers have said, you know, he they thought it was blasphemous or, or whatever, or he wasn't going to get enough money out of it. Anyway, reading all this, first of all, I thought that doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, one of the reasons was that this newspaper report of this meeting in the New York Times, which thanks to the um, wonders of digital technology and so on, you can access all this online. I found this report, and it's buried on page five of the New York Times. Just a few column inches, and it's reporting on a standard meeting of a learned society. And they would have done that over here if there'd been a meeting of the Royal Society or whatever. You see what I mean? They would have just reported on that meeting, and it was innocuous. It was on page five, and it was one of the in- happenings of the city. Well, it was, yeah, it was just, yes, it was just part of this on in the middle of page five, buried in a load of other text. The newspapers then were not quite as, as um, shall we say, visual as they are today, mm-hmm. as you know. Anyway, that report came out on March the 3rd. So my first question was, well, if that came out on my, March the 3rd, why wait two months if it was an act of vengeance? If it was, if he'd seen this report and was furious... Why, why wait two months? Why not do it within a few days? And my other question was more to do with, again, the history of New York, was Tweed was in power, but there were an awful lot of people who were very um, suspicious and indignant about who he was. And by then, he was fighting for his political life. And Thomas Nast, the famous cartoonist, was beginning to bring out vicious cartoons of of tweed and what they call the tweed ring his mates and the corruption they accused him of rope vote rigging they accused him of money laundering and goodness knows what else so my other question was you can even look through the new york times and only two days after the report of the meeting so i think it's around march the 10th or something later earlier than that the headline on the front page of the new york times is something derogatory about tweed so my other question is is if he's fighting for his political life and being challenged uh, publicly by harper's weekly and new york times and and so on why was he wasting time getting so upset about this effectively cancellation of a minor project so those two questions immediately made me think something doesn't look right here and I started to go into it and that's how I started going back and trying to get into the primary sources to find out what had actually happened so that was the the starting point I was talking this over with Mike who um as a professor of paleontology he is actually very interested in the history of the subject and knowledgeable so he was interested in what i was doing anyway so we would be discussing this at regular intervals um but that was that was what for me triggered the questions that made me go back and look at it again and uh in in part of looking at it again
0: what was the what was the story that you uncovered not to give away the ending as such but i <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess that's that's where we're at, isn't it? Well, it wasn't tweed. Um, that's what I found. And what I was able to do, and I, I would say I want you know, I would like to make it really clear that the reason I could do this and unpick all this now was because the good people of New York City and the Library of Congress and so on mm-hmm. have put all the records online. And that's very the helpful de- for researchers. Exactly. So I was able to sit, you know, at home in Bristol with my feet up and a glass of wine and read the annual reports of the Board of Commissioners of Central Park, the minutes of all the meetings, um, the access to the newspapers. I could get into the New York Times archives. I could get into the other archives. I could see, um, you know, all all that was available now. And, and to be fair, when other people were Writing these accounts, I suspect to have gone into this level of research, somebody would have had to have physically gone into a basement somewhere in New York City and found stuff. You see what I mean? It, it would have been much yeah. more practically difficult. So I would say that the timing is simply because all this stuff is online. When I started my PhD, which was a while ago, it seemed like a brilliant idea that, and it would seem very practical for various reasons that it was quite feasible for me to go to America and go to archives, go to museums, meet researchers and so on. So at the time, it was one of those great ideas at the time. But of course, then when COVID hit, um, that all went out the window. I would also say that since then, I have been absolutely thrilled at how much help I've had from people in America. People, whether it's academics or archives or you know there's been that sense of people genuinely wanting to help and sending me material or pointing material out to me or whatever which you know has has been great so that's been helpful
0: yeah it's absolutely fantastic when you're doing research and and there are people willing to help you know through, through no benefit to themselves as such except helping to unearth you know a story that that is worth being told somewhere. So I'm really interested in we can we can keep talking about the paper. That's um there's plenty there as well. But I'll certainly point people to it and encourage it. It's a really interesting read. But I'm really interested in the rest of your PhD as well. Could you could I get a little insight into some of the other projects that you're
1: also looking at there? Yes. I'm looking at, as I said, four case studies. Um (coughs) excuse me. The first is in is the one I mentioned. So it was what happened in in America to trigger this enthusiasm that still exists today. Um, And that is essentially the um, mounting of the hadrosaur. We look at that in the paper in more detail, how we went about it and so on. And just the whole uh, approach to the fact that that, that they'd found dinosaurs, these creatures that were so different from anything else and so on. Mm -hmm. That's my first one. So I break it into four. The second one... Is the painter Charles Knight, um, who was, is probably still one of the best known paleo artists, if you like. Yeah. He worked at the American Museum of Natural History most of the time, not all of the time, and he was painting dinosaurs and other prehistoric um, creatures. He was using color, and he was putting them into, if you like, what I call a, a cinematic landscape. So his Images were full colour, full landscape images, paintings. And he really pioneered that, that way of, of um, representing creatures. I'm specifically looking at dinosaurs, but he is one of the West, the best known. But I wanted to go back and I look at him again as an artist. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about him is he was trained formally as an artist. He went to art school. Um, he was taught traditional methods of painting and some sculpture. And so I look at him again, and a bit like you mentioned earlier, I look at things like the relationship between his work, the museum. So this is also a, a sort of museum-based chapter, and how museum displays were decided on, how they were reaction reaction of the public, um, and the relationship with the science as well, how he related to... The scientists in the museum, how he worked with them and so on. So that's my second one. I then look at how it moved into entertainment, and I look at the third case, which is Gertie the Dinosaur, which is mm-hmm. the 1914 animation yeah. by Windsor yeah. McKay. And he initially did this whole cartoon as entertainment, as for his vaudeville act. He was a vaudeville performer on stage. Would project the cartoon onto a screen and interact with it. So we've moved away from them being used in museum displays to, if you like, educate into entertainment. So that's my yeah. third and, one. And suddenly, that's the jump into pop culture, which is, and yeah. it comes into pop culture. And then what's interesting is they have come into pop culture. They were they were beginning to come in, um, but Gertie was a huge achievement. And I also look at the animation that was used. And my fourth case is Walt Disney's Fantasia, which has mm-hmm. got the sequence of the Rite of Spring um, in the dinosaurs feature very heavily in that. But what's interesting when I started looking into this is between Gertie, which was 1914, and Fantasia, which came out in 1940, there is effectively no drawn animation of dinosaurs. Really? There's that stop is a frame. surprise. Yes, mm. there's stop frame, of course. You have Willis O'Brien, you have The Lost World, you have King Kong um, and so on. So they were getting some interest, but I've looked into this a lot. And in terms of Gertie, which is a line-drawn animation, to Fantasia, which was, as you know, full colour um, for the big screen. So those two almost bookend that period. Um, and so those are the four case studies I look at. And the two second two, as you can see, are, are into entertainment. But what's interesting is even with Gertie and with Walt Disney and Fantasia, they are very keen to get the science right.
0: Yes, I actually rewatched Fantasia just uh, last week, and y- you know the um, narrator or the the introducer at the start of it says mm. that this is all based on the science. He he oh. claims he he says very forwardly, we're we're trying to get this right um, based on the scientific fact, which is really yeah.
1: uh, a fascinating approach. Mm, so in that case, I look into who the scientists were that he were dealt with, how the animators got their information. At what point did the studio decide to deviate from the science? Because the, the dinosaur enthusiasts will immediately point out that there's no way T-Rex would have fought a stegosaurus, for example. Um, and also, there's the fascinating, to me, case of they gave T-Rex three fingers um, rather than two. And I look in, that's how I look into that whole area. But also going back to Gertie Windsor McKay lived in New York and he was very familiar with the AMNH. He was in and out and he based Gertie on the Brontosaurus model, as it was then, that was um, mounted and initially the first display was in about 1905. And he was really trying to make his dinosaur based on the brontosaurus so he wasn't just making something up you know he was also very keen that it was right if you like and and i have seen accounts um, i haven't verified them but i've seen accounts you know that he would actually go in and, and be in absolute pain talking to the staff wanting to know how it would move how it would um you know balance and and, and so on now i have a i have a, a theory and i can't prove it but i'm going to say it anyway i would like to think that Winsor McKay met Charles Knight if you look at the dates that the yeah. date that McKay was going into the museum getting all his references for Gertie Knight was painting and I just I just think it would be poetic <laughs> if they'd actually met each other I mean I don't have any diary entries or anything but I just look at the dates and think that might have been the case anyway those are my four studies and and between the four of them they really take us from attempting to show something in a museum right the way through to the big screen with Mm -hmm. fantasia what are you finding so far that what ties
0: the four case studies together is there anything that you can say even at this stage that you say across these four case studies this is something that brings them all together or is a finding that I can point to as something that that holds um, the relationship between dinosaurs and visual culture in that period together?
1: I think there are two things. I think in each case, there was this relationship with the science. Um, there was the, the idea that if we're going to show dinosaurs visually, you have to be able to show them with as much of the information available at the time they they weren't trying to go off and just make up a creature um they were all the all the artists as I would call them and even if you look at the intermediate things the stop frames which I don't go into in detail but I have to look at as, as a sort of um, comparison they are trying very hard and that is something that I think it whether it's a museum display right the way through to its entertainment. I mean, we could even say today with Jurassic Park and the, and the spin-offs and so on, there was a, a modicum of intent to make it look as scientifically realistic mm-hmm. as possible. That was one thing that it does seem to be consistent. So it looks as if the second two cases are, oh, well, they're entertainment, you know, to make money. Um, but there was still this insistence on getting the science right. And the other thing is how much the images um particularly from night onwards are affected by contemporary culture around it mm-hmm. so if we look at charles knight for example um i'm looking at the idea his his paintings his dinosaurs are quite macho they yep. tie in and what was happening at the time was you were getting things like big game hunting roosevelt and so on that. They they, what I'm looking at is how the surrounding cultural um, activities feed back into how the dinosaurs are represented. I find it fascinating with Gertie that he makes her female. And there are all sorts of interesting reasons as to why Gertie is a female. But also, when I looked at Gertie, I mean, I'm happy to, to talk about what I found. What surprised me was the other huge entertainment particularly for the working classes at the time, was the circus. Mm -hmm. And I started to look at Gertie and I looked at the circus and what I found was that the structure of Gertie the dinosaur, the cartoon, is the same as the structure of the big cat acts in a circus. So the, the progression of events through the act He's, he's obviously based that on having seen these in the circus and he mm-hmm. even dresses like a circus ringmaster in his act. Um, so there's this whole, the, the surrounding culture is feeding back in and the thing I found about Fantasia, which um, I've written about in a sort of relatively informal way for my um, dissertation, tried it out on people, if you like, tried out the ideas on historians as well as, um, you know, art, history of art. And I have a, a good relationship. Bristol has a department of film and television, and mm-hmm. one of the senior lecturers there is uh, an expert in the history of animation, so I've talked to him at length. But in the Fantasia film, they show the dinosaurs as going extinct in the desert. Yes, and they had no real reason to know that. And happily, my supervisor Mike Benton, one of his areas of expertise are the theories of extinction historically, and he said, "No, we—they were ideas floating around, all sorts of ideas as to why they went extinct, but they didn't know." But then, if you, as you've already pointed out at the beginning of that sequence, the introduction gives it, it gives it away because what was happening in California. When that film was being animated, was the fallout from the Dust Bowl, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that Dust Bowl incident in America, I'm sure people will be familiar with it. It was the 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 main mid plains. The farming techniques and so on had stripped the surface of support, so the there was a drought. The wind was blowing the surface away. All the crops failed. It was a huge, huge environmental disaster. And the workers, the farmers, and so on, were having to leave. And they, an awful lot of them ended up in California. And so there's a huge cultural, political, economic issue going on at the time in California when the animation was being made. And if you look at the beginning of that sequence, he says, he actually uses that phrase, he says, they. Disappeared, they walked out, they trekked into across the, he uses the phrase, the gigantic dust bowl. And so my thinking there is that would have been such a huge issue in California, in Los Angeles at the time, in the late 1930s. So it, it affected. That's the essentially team.
0: the environment that Disney yes. itself was was sort of coming exactly. up in. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And so and that I think, the, you know, yeah we we really see this right through the history of dinosaurs don't we we, we yes. see that they're repeatedly used particularly in relation to the environment to um both um used as allegories for i guess human relationships with the environment so there's that circumstance and and we we talk about you know um people as dinosaurs as well yes. people who are have old-fashioned thinking for example and should go extinct or those kinds of things like that uh, uh, you know it's this very common cultural currency to use dinosaurs in a way to tell these other stories of, of environmental messages um quite often and even nowadays there's conversations about what can dinosaurs tell us about um, climate change and adapting to changing environments all, all around the planet and even paleontologists are telling these stories you know that um one of the reasons paleontology is important is because it tells us how animals adapt to a changing environment, which is where we find ourselves right now.
1: Exactly. And I think that's, um, it is, it is, I mean, I know in, in, in Bristol, they do a lot of work on, on that, you know, how, also, as you say, how do, how did animals adapt to quite extreme changes in environment? And then what went wrong? What, what happened where they couldn't adapt? Mm -hmm. So there's that whole information. Um, and I think, as you say, that that sort of cultural currency, I mean, one of the things I look at earlier on, more to do with um, around the Charles Knight era, so you're looking at late 1890s to early 20th century, there was this sense of dinosaurs being dragged in as icons of things like the um, corporate expansion in America, mm. the huge um, fortunes that were being made the difference between the small business community and then the huge corporations they they were coming into the argument about what was viable and what went extinct and so on and there's a sense of what was interesting as well is that the money chasing the money is interesting so even the economics come into it there's yeah. a brilliant book by um, Lucas Rapel who wrote a book called Assembling the Dinosaur, and he looks at the economics, if you like, and politics of all this. And the early museums, the American Museum, the um, Pittsburgh, you know, museum in Pittsburgh, and so on. All these museums were funded by these huge um, well, they called them the robber barons, didn't they, in an unflattering mm-hmm. way? But they were all funded by philanthropy, by people yeah. saying, "Oh, Carnegie ed- and the like, yeah, Carnegie, um, J.P. Morgan, and mm-hmm. so on." You know, we'd we better we better educate the masses, and so. But there was so they they were funding the museums, they were funding the digs. J.P. Morgan was effectively funding Charles Knight's employment. So there's this huge cultural, political um tangle that mm. so just drawing a picture of a dinosaur doesn't really just stand out on its own it, it's all immersed in in various cultural issues
0: yeah and I, I certainly think we you know we see that now even if um there's a proposal for a new museum or moving a museum or whatever it is because that's kind of coming out of the the public dollar it becomes immediately a politicized um mm. issue uh, and and questioning what is the value of these whatever it happens to be
1: yes and also the other side of it is that people use the argument well if you put a dinosaur in a museum you'll get visitors Mm -hmm. um and so there is the simple economics of if you want a museum natural history museum to do well then put a dinosaur in it and people will come Uh, i have some figures somewhere um we've had our diplodocus in the uk kind gift from mr. Carnegie um, that's been moved around because the, the, because of changes in the Natural History Museum and it went for a while to a museum in the Midlands and the phenomenal increase in visitor numbers to that museum you know made a huge economic change so so the other argument with museums is if we put a dinosaur in then if you know they will come the visitors will come yeah. so you, you've got that side of it as well you know people people go to a museum now and expect to see one um which is which is part not just
0: any dinosaur if you can get a t-rex all all the better (laughs) there's (laughs) a lot of museums i think that's why you know stan was was sold to a a new museum being set up in the middle east because well if you want a dinosaur stan's the one to get isn't it stan the t-rex so absolutely uh Vicky, is there anything else you wanted to cover? There's so much there and, and I'm sure I'd love to have you back and, and talk some more but um, I really thank you so much for, for having a chat, letting me talk and ask you questions about the PhD. They're always, um, always impolite to ask
1: a PhD student how they're progressing but <laughs> thank you well, so I much didn't, i didn't cry so <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> the, I mean the toll is here if you do it part-time i mean a normal phd is probably much the same as you have three years plus a year to effectively write yep. up but I, i've got eight years so it's like i've been doing this forever i'm now i'm now in sort of coming through year six um and i have other things i've been doing so but uh it's it's been it's been interesting and if i if i the Media project that I set up, um, the reason I set that up was, like yourself, people were so interested in what I was doing. Um, I started a discussion group in Bristol, um, just amongst, we run an MSc course on paleobiology, for example. So I just set it up to look at anything to do with dinosaurs or equivalent, mm. um, which got a lot of interest. So it wasn't necessarily as focused as my PhD is. And then of course COVID hit. Um and so but I took it online and when I took it online I then actually got more people interested because they could come in from anywhere and we would have yeah. online sessions. They haven't gone away, it's just that situation's changed for a bit. I've now got somebody helping me with the project. So we do plan to go back um and put things online. Um, but the last one of the earlier online sessions I did uh, about Fantasia, um, I had somebody come in from Chicago. Um, I think she'd got up at some godforsaken hour in the morning to, to come in. So the and that's simply why I set up the the blog, the the Facebook group, and so on, just because people seemed so interested in this that it was a way of bringing people together, really, and and taking it wider than my academic research. My, my supervisor keeps saying to me, "You have to focus, you know, stop bouncing off and <laughs> getting interested in something else so but this allows me to do that as a supervisor myself
0: i can I can attest to that as good advice yeah. um, uh, but also advice that as a student I didn't take so <laughs> yeah,
1: so that's that's uh, but yeah, so I mean anybody who's interested in it is welcome to join you know the email list the 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 group um For sure. You know, it's, 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 and I've, I've sort of, you know, there's been dragons and all sorts of things have come into it. So it's fairly relaxed, shall we say.
0: I'll put some links to both the article uh, and also to the paleo media group in, uh, in the show notes. Uh, Vicky, thank you so much again.
1: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again to Vicky for
0: telling us all about the fascinating story of the Central Park dinosaurs and also her broader PhD research. There are links to the article and also the Bristol Paleo Media project in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fossils and Fiction. We're always looking for more paleo stories to tell and welcome your suggestions through our social channels. You can also send voice notes via Spotify or social media. Podcast music is Sonora by Quincas Morau by the YouTube audio library. Show notes are available on the website fossilsfiction.com. Please subscribe and
1: rate the podcast on your preferred podcasting platform.